0: special edition of our show History on the Rocks with Katie and Allie. Typically it would just be Allie and I hanging out on a Thursday night talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about history.
1: We have a very special guest here with us today, Diana Garvin. Welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Hi there. <laughs>
1: Diana is an assistant professor of Italian with a specialty in Mediterranean studies in the Department of Romance Languages at the University of Oregon, and she is here to talk with us today about her new book, Feeding Fascism. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Definitely. So I am a culinary historian, which means that I spend a lot of time going into museums, libraries, and archives. But I don't dig up books. I look up old uh, objects like toasters and ladles, um, dishes, cookbooks, menus, cafeteria plans, anything that has to do with food. And I look at what that says about Italian politics and history.
0: Oh, that's incredible. My mom would love this. She's always bringing home like giant cast iron skillets and like ladles and things like that. She's like, this was a meat hammer. I'm like, <laughs>
2: Okay, you can't tell what this stuff was. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) So before we dive into the book, uh, we have a cocktail for it, which we're really excited about. Um, So obviously, we wanted to be kind of Italian themed. So we used limoncello, Um, but also I feel like this book is a little bit about you know like the disruption of Italian cuisine. (laughs) So rather than pairing it with like vodka or something, we put bourbon in it and topped it with ginger beer. (laughs) So cheers. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. I mean, I think it's delightful. I love it. <laughs> I like limoncello,
1: though. I think a lot of times people expect lemon to be very tart, and it's yeah. so not. It's really mm-hmm. great.
2: Okay. As the taste of the Italian South. Yes.
1: <laughs> so before we dive into the specifics of your book, we for our listeners, we want to kind of set the scene. So in general, what is life like for women in Italy during the fascist regime? Regime
2: it's changing a lot so the main thing that's going on is there's this huge push towards social conservatism and what that means for women is the regime is trying to push them out of jobs in the public sphere um it's encouraging them to become what it called prolific mothers so that meant a minimum of 6 children Lots, wow. lots of off babies
1: um, I, I wish we had that face yeah. <laughs> I might screenshot our faces
2: later it's truly you see some of the photos of families of the period and it's like 10 kids 12 kids it's just it's shocking so um and at the same time um even though the regime really wanted women out of the public sphere it had this other big push in competition which was to produce not just more and better Italian babies, but more and better Italian food. Um, The idea is if you had more babies today, you would have more fascist soldiers tomorrow. Um, And if you had more Italian food, you could basically act unilaterally on the world stage and invade other countries because you wouldn't need trade partners anymore. Mm.
0: And it's interesting because so one of the main focuses of your book is how women used agriculture and industrial labor and all these other things to kind of feed their families but also it seems like feed the this new idea of italy Mm -hmm. so were there specific things that were changing for their day-to-day lives in the kitchen
2: yeah what's strange is the food itself doesn't change all that much um so with food you see a couple of changes around the edges that you could probably expect for more time so just like we had victory gardens in the u.s um Mussolini was telling women in the cities to build rabbit hutches and chicken coops in their city you know, right outside their city apartments and to start growing peppers and bathtubs um so you get the farming in the city um But Italian has always had la cucina povera, so the cooking of the poor. People basically keep eating a lot of the same stuff, a lot of big bowls of polenta, cheap cereals, lots of minestrone, so things, you know, tons and tons of vegetables. Um, Anything that is uh, easy to grow or, like rabbits, famously reproductive. Um, (laughs) So food kind of stays the same. It's just that what was considered poverty is now cast as patriotism. But what's wild is the kitchen changes. So the architecture of the kitchen is completely different during this period. It um, it goes from being one big multi-purpose room. Um, in the old days before central heating, warmth was the biggest concern. So it wasn't just people in the kitchen, it was cows and chickens and basically everybody because um, they're giving off heat. So you stay warmer when you're cuddled up next to your goat. Um, but uh under fascism there's this new drive for everything to be for the kitchen to be like this small sanitary laboratory um so the way that they do that the way that they get the cows and the cats out of the ch- out of the kitchen is they shrink it so they build these really tiny kitchens in the new public housing projects and suddenly only one person can fit in there and that person is a woman
1: mm-hmm. Now, were there specific women or groups of women in the book that stood out to you as your favorite during the time of writing or like an interesting anecdote that you thought was neat?
2: Oh, there were so many. <laughs> um, I was really partial to this group of women called the Mundine. So it means the rice workers. And at first you would think, my God, what could be more boring than weeding rice? <laughs> um, but these women were... Um, God, they were a hoot. They were, um, so the regime loved them. They uh, appeared to be everything that you could want out of a fascist woman. They were big, muscular, like florid cheeks. Um, They were hard workers. The only problem was they were all anarchists, socialists, and communists. Um, (laughs) And they hated the regime. And there are these great letters that show basically this state of near constant revolt on the rice paddies. Um, And in the darkest days of fascism, they actually managed to stop the entire train system by lying across the tracks and demanding the eight-hour workday. Um, So for Italians who are currently enjoying the eight-hour workday, that's actually where it comes from.
0: Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Nice. And I would love to know a little bit more about the, is it Baccio chocolate Factory? Oh, the
2: Baccio, yes.
0: There is a connection to breastfeeding there, which I feel like also kind of goes with the theme of like feeding the nation and these new Italians coming up.
2: It's truly wild. So we've got Baccio in the States. Um, In fact, the name actually means kisses. So it's basically Italian Hershey kisses. Mm. Um, And what's wild about the Baccio is it's a fascist period history. So um, one of the only like hyper successful female entrepreneurs in the period was a chocolate maker who is a Spagnoli. Um, her, obviously, her company is still around today because you can still find these little silver foil wrapped candies with their signature blue stars on them. Um, you know, they've got a hazelnut in there. So, where that comes from is she, the part of the way she was able to be so successful was by adopting regime policies and then turning them towards her own ends. Um so she ostensibly supported uh this push for lots of children which is called pronatalism. Um she had a lot of policies at her company. She opened up uh breastfeeding rooms um in the factory. She had um summer camps that were available to her kid uh, to the kids of factory workers um About 75% of her workers in 1922, the year the start of fascism, were female. Um, And she even offered health insurance and life insurance with benefits to support um, people's husbands and children since they were the primary breadwinners. So all this stuff seems really progressive at first, and in many ways it was. The problem was... um, It basically aimed at creating this total company. So the idea was to get as many hours out of a worker as humanly possible. And if they don't need to leave the factory to go breastfeed, then that's one more worker that you have, you know, doing their thing. The history of the Bacho is um, actually the story of an affair. So... Part of, um, so Luisa Spagnoli um, first started her company with her husband, Annibale. Um, She had started working really young. Um, Her father was a fishmonger. He died early. So she worked uh, as a assistant to a seamstress. Um, She was so young, she would take home little scraps of ribbons to play with his toys. (laughs) Um, So she had some sewing savings and her and her husband, Annibale, um, they met when he came to play in the town of the band. Um, they start this little chocolate shop, and it grows and grows. She's the one to introduce mechanized production. Um, and she gets a little bit of help from Francesco Buitoni, who's the, uh, of the pasta company. So Francesco's kind of an older guy. He doesn't really know the marketing as well. Um, but he does have a hot young son, Giovanni, um, who at 18 is called back from studying in Germany. Um, and Giovanni is a marketing whiz. So uh, Luisa and Giovanni spend more and more time together. She is paying attention to fascist policy um, and they're you know, more and more sanctions. So you don't have as much chocolate. She's trying to craft luxury from uh, leftovers. So one day she scoops up a handful of, cho- of waste chocolate tops it with a hazelnut and says, okay, this is a cazzotto because it looks like a punch with one knuckle uh, poking out the top. And Giovanni turned to her and supposedly said, that's not very romantic. You can't offer your lover a box of punches. Turn it to a kiss. And supposedly they kissed right over the factory line. Um, and uh, so that was the birth of the box show. Um, One day when Annabelle came home a bit early, she was surrounded by love letters from Giovanni. Um, and she pulled it off as a marketing scheme. She said, oh, you know, this is, we're going to have a little love letter in each bacho. It's, it's marketing. It's not from anyone. Um, and to this day, there are still little fortunes that you get when you unwrap a bacho.
1: Oh, that's so cute. So cute. I'm also getting like <laughs>
2: Mad really Men
0: like yeah. the bucket of kisses scene from <laughs> Mad Men. Oh yeah. Oh yeah.
2: <laughs> yes. Oh my God. I actually am just watching Mad Men now. <laughs> I was late to the game. <laughs> yeah it's
1: okay. It's traumatic, yeah
2: <laughs> I know I shake after watching them <laughs> yeah it's a it's a commitment
1: <laughs> so what are some of the the relics of fascism that still exist in Italian cuisine and Italian kitchens today?
2: You know what's wild is the dishware hung on to a lot of the fascist period. So, um, you know that I, the iconic um, octagonal Bialetti mocha machine, that was born in 1933. And those aesthetics, all, you know, the shine, the geometry, the metal, all that came from, um, from the futurists, which is this fringe art movement, but who the fascists loved and adopted throughout their kitchens. So, so many of the appliances of this period date from when the regime was trying to do autarky. So that means basically more Italian products, no imports, you know, one more way so that they could act uh, unilaterally. They really gave a push to their aluminum industry. Um, so because iron ore is slightly less prevalent in Italy, in the soil, um, they stopped producing quite as much iron. Um, all of those big old heavy dishes, there's less of that. Um, but everything that was shining and gleaming, light and easy to clean, so much of that dates from this push in the 1930s to make all the kitchenware aluminum. Mm
0: -hmm. And while you were researching this book and kind of writing about these things and learning about the history of things we may consider, you know, things that have always been there, Mm -hmm. (laughs) were there some things that you were more upset to learn about the history of that you were like, ah. Well, I didn't want it to be
2: that. <laughs> oh gosh, that's such a great question. Yeah, so this actually predates fascism a little bit, and um, I guess I'll give I'll give a warning here in case anyone in your show w- listens to this with children. Um, but uh, some of the period's pornography uh, was pretty disturbing. So um, this is actually kind of an interesting thing with researching. Um, I usually go to really small archives that are out in the middle of nowhere, because um, they're more likely to have hung on to kind of like the junk of everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, State archives didn't think that toasters and plates um, or pornography were important or worth saving. Um, I went to the Museo de la Figurina, which means the picture card museum in Maldana. And I, the last question I always ask archivists is, is there anything else that you want to show me? (laughs) And there was a female archivist who had said, well, you know, we have a naughty room and (laughs) they tell us to not show this to, um, uh, for many years, they said, don't show this to female researchers, but she was the one in charge. So she was just like, well, screw that. I'm just not going to show it to anybody. (laughs) Um, so I got to see, it was basically matchbook covers, Mm -hmm. um and they dated from the turn of the century also pocket calendars um and they a lot of them had imperial themes especially with the war on um east africa and there was so much violence in them like they were supposed to be sexy and funny but there were so many images of people hitting women it was just really really sad um and also very weird because it was, pornography was used differently in the past. Um, in the case of these matchbook covers, it was semi-public. So you, in a upper middle class household, you would have a glass bowl filled with matchbooks like this, just sitting on the kitchen table. And it's so weird to think about, you know, if you have a little kid toddling vibe, it's so bizarre. Um, so on one hand, um, you just, it was really um To see how common the violence was and how much it was minimized was really sad. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet it was also, you know, the way that object traveled is this part of history that we don't usually look at. And yet it's how people live their everyday lives.
1: Now, when you decided to write this book, is this something that was stewing with you for a really long time? Or as a food his culinary historian, did you wake up one day and you're like, yup, Italian fascism, is <laughs> it.
2: You know what? I have almost always, since before I knew what a culinary historian was, I'd sort of been doing this by accident. Mm. I just, I grew up um, learning how to cook, absolutely loved it. Um, people had handed me cookbooks over time, and they were always saying, well, you know, this ingredient's here because of this historical thing, and this is political because of this. So I had always seen food as being so political, and I did get an extra push as an undergrad because at I remember at my college, people just hated the idea of studying food. It was real, it was it's so strange because it's an art just like painting or music. Mm -hmm. And yet, whereas it was totally okay to study literature or opera for some reason, at least this is not that long ago, but like, um, it was, if you were studying food, you were doing so in anthropology, you weren't studying it as much in, um, I was in a romance studies department, which is usually more literature. Um, so Partially because I remember a few folks being so just like, Boof, like you <laughs> can see their feathers like puffing up, just like yeah, I don't care, I want to do that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I also really want to know, since
2: you're researching all this food stuff, did you get to make any of the recipes? So many of the dishes are best avoided. Um, even <laughs> if I could get my hands on uh, on boiled frogs, I'm not sure if I'd know quite what to do with them. Yeah. <laughs> um, But, (laughs) but I do. Okay. But you know what I do do is I do collect some of the old cookbooks, um, because the imagery is so amazing. Um, so I have a collection of basically out of touch cookbooks, um, things with titles like how to cook for a man and things like (laughs) that, um, which are just, I, I just love their, and they're like pictures of, um, you know, women who are, you know, cooking a rabbit while wearing an elegant rabbit fur in an evening gown, just, like, all of the absurdity, and I'm sure that one day, whatever we do, whatever we're doing right now is gonna look just as absurd to another historian, um, but I do, I do love collecting those objects.
1: (laughs) Do, what is, like, do you have any crazy cookware in your kitchen,
2: just, like, that you use, or that's on display? Oh my gosh, I've got a lot of stuff. So one of the things is um, I do have a really sweet Bialetti espresso machine because my second project is called The Bean in the Machine and it's the global history of coffee under fascism. Mm. So um, my partner actually, we were just on a research trip um, through a lot of the um, espresso machine uh, companies uh, in Milan, Turin, Um, and so we learned from some of the folks at Lavazza, like exactly how you pull an espresso and stuff like that. So that's my favorite. I do have some historical gear. I've got a, uh, I've got a 1920s toaster that I absolutely love. Um, it's very weird. It's triangular. Like you might not guess that it's a toaster first thing off, um, I'm kind of wondering, was bread that much smaller? It's just, it's really crazy to look at.
0: (laughs) And so there's a lot to kind of unpack in this book because we're talking about some pretty turbulent times and a lot of resilience, but what do you think people can relate to in this story today?
2: Oh, I bet that they will relate to not knowing exactly where they, how where they fall politically and what to do about it. Cause I remember seeing, um, particularly among the, you know, those rice weeders who again fell on much more of the uh, liberal side of the scale, but there are a lot of moments. Um, so fortunately for those folks, there are a lot of work songs where we've got firsthand voices and diaries because they learned how to write later in life. And they talk about moments where they didn't think that they were political yet. Um, but where they're politicizing. So there's this amazing image of, um, it reminds me of a reverse Hamlet, only instead of a man holding a skull and thinking about death, it's a woman holding a bird egg and thinking about life. And you can actually watch it. She's deciding whether or not she's going to basically drink this wild bird egg. And is it stealing because it's from the landowner's turf or is it hers because as you know maybe she's about to become communist and she feels like if she works the land she owns it um and she describes like ticking back and forth is it mine is it his is it mine is it his and she says and that's when I became political so like I think that it's um you know we often think about politics as being like this big public rally or a strike and I think that people will see themselves in some of those moments before they really know what they want to do, but where they have this political consciousness dawning. Mm.
1: I have a very important question. Is there anything else that you (laughs) would like
2: to tell us? (laughs) (laughs) Always a good question. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Let's see. Mostly that, um, Oh, that I hope that people, if people are interested in the book, that I hope they'll request it for their libraries. Hmm. Um, Because part of what I see actually looking at cookbooks in the past is we don't know the true um, circulation in some cases because people were handing books around and some of the books that had the most power were really, you know, just popular books. and It was because so many folks got to read them because they were sharing. So my great hope would be that if folks are interested in the book, like, yes, please buy one. Like, I can't, I would definitely encourage that as an author. But like, moreover, I'd be so grateful if people requested that their libraries get a copy so that lots of people could read it.
0: Perfect. Well, Allie's sister is a librarian, so we'll put in a good word. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I also like people to go out and buy it just because the cover is so beautiful. I wanted to compliment you on that really I love the cover. <laughs> it is like, it's a really cool artistic image of a woman serving like a plate of pasta spaghetti with a butcher knife behind her back. And it's <laughs> it's perfect. So I just want to compliment you on that. So if you're a fan of you... book like I am. <laughs> yeah.
2: The cover matters. I actually worked with an illustrator on it for a long time. Like even those fonts. That's mm-hmm. the Futura font from 1920 and it was what did all of the all the post offices and train stations. Even today, that's the font. It was awesome. uh it's just predates fascism. <laughs> <laughs> it has that look. I didn't want to be like, hey, here's the font. But um so yeah, every part of that cover actually has uh fascist body politics and um, you know, period fonts and all of that artists of the period.
0: Oh, well, it's perfect. I love it and i you. frequently judge books by their covers so
1: <laughs> so where can people find you? Is there anywhere they can follow you and other than obviously requesting it at a library, where is the book available for people to purchase
2: yeah, so um University of toronto press um actually has uh, i don't know if it'll, uh, they have a discount available for um like two more days i think um So it's, uh, the code is Italy35, um, and I think that's good through the end of April, Um, although with a nice request, maybe they'll extend it. So the University of Toronto website, um, and I think it's, oh, you guys might know better than me. Is it Indie something? Oh, Indie Bound. bound. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Yeah. So one more time, what is it? Indie Bound. Indie Bound. Yeah. Indie Mm -hmm. Bound. You can pick it up at independent bookstores. Um, you know, Amazon will have it too. Um, so any of those sources and uh I I tweet a lot because as an academic, I'm kind of tied to my computer if I'm not in a museum or an archive. So I'm at uh Diana E. Garvin. Um, let's see, I'm also on Instagram as mangiodunque sono, which is I eat therefore I am an Italian. <laughs> um and I've got a website uh if you're interested in reading. Um I do a lot of articles on Italian fascist kitsch so like Belilla baby dolls and kids toys uh I have a whole article on a fascist monopoly set so if you're interested in some of these uh you know some of the data the the junk of day-to-day life under the dictatorship um I've got a lot of articles up there awesome oh so (laughs) (laughs) dianagarvin.com
1: Awesome. Well, perfect. It's been so fun talking to you and the book's just amazing. And we're so excited that it's out there to just talk about what, you know, what women were doing in their kitchens. I think it's somewhere we all spend a lot of time. Yeah. Always. You yeah.
2: know, <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys so much for this. This is a blast. <laughs>